Welcome to the Classics Podcast Does Ancient History A-Level, brought to you by the Classical Association. So let's turn to the Athens depth study then, and we've got four plays that students need to be aware of here in different uh, extents. Um, we'll start actually, um, perhaps counterintuitively, with the one that comes last chronologically and also has the shortest amount that students need to read. That is the, I'm going to call it the women at the Thesmophoria because it's such a long word to pronounce. I might ask you to do that. Um, and we're just looking here at the uh, two sections of the Parabasis, I believe. That's lines 786 to 800 and then 830 to 842. But before we think about those lines and what they might tell us about uh, the role of women in Athenian society, which is something that Athens students need to study. Perhaps just give us a little overview of this play because it's it's in 411, isn't it? It happens at the same year, but not at the same festival as Lysistrata. Um, and it's a lot of fun. It's an absolute riot. And uh, particularly for anyone who likes Euripides, uh, then this is just wonderful because it's sketch after sketch parodying his tragedies. And so it's a sort of celebration of Euripides, but along the way, we learn a lot uh, about Athens as well. So the main story of it, the premise, is that Euripides is gonna be put on trial by the women of Athens because they're so outraged by the way in which he presents them in his tragedies. So he enlists some help. And initially he wants the tragic playwright Agathon to help him. He's not willing to do it, but his in-law is willing to go and infiltrate the female-only festival, the Thesmophoria, where all the women are getting together and plotting against Euripides. So he, the job is to infiltrate and to get, try to get them to change their mind. And the uh, in-law totally fails to do that and gets discovered. And the rest of the play is all about trying to escape from these women and get res eventually get rescued. And so it's an opportunity for Aristophanes to play with ideas about what might go on at that all-female festival at the same time as uh, exploring and celebrating Euripides' tragedies, some of which are actually known as escape tragedies because they're all about being in a situation where you have to try to get out. Um, and so it works on lots of levels as I say, it is uh, terrific fun. And I do think it's important that it's, as you said, in the same year as the Lysistrata. So there is certainly something going on in terms of Aristophanes exploring and thinking about women or female characters in that year. Okay, thank you. And uh, yeah, it's worth saying, I mean, that the whole concept of that festival is extraordinary anyway, isn't it? Because those women, they go and camp out on the Pnyx, which is the the seat of the assembly and uh, that's where they are for I think three days conducting their religious rites I think it's in the sort of September the autumn time of year and um, that in itself is a fascinating aspect to uh, Athenian public life that the women almost take control of the the democratic assembly place or they do really for three days. So what we're trying to do uh, with these sections, these two uh, sections, is think about what they might tell us about the role, the status, and the position of women in uh, ancient Athens. And 
I, I would just like to throw in there when we start that the famous quote from the end of the funeral speech of Pericles, as recorded by Thucydides, which is also a, a prescribed source, where he, he goes on and on and on about why Athens was a wonderful city worth dying for if you're a man. And at the end, he just throws a kind of sh a small morsel uh, of comfort to the women. He says, oh, I better, better say something about the women. Bear up, you know, chin up, good luck. But he says that the most virtuous woman is the one who is least spoken about, whether for praise or for blame. So that might strike us as, as really surprising that don't even be seen uh, as a good woman, because then you might be, be talked about, then you're being talked about, just be as an anonymous as possible, and then you're super virtuous. And we then might think, well, if that's the reality, then they're just stuck at home hiding so that no one ever talks about them. Now, that is not realistic in any human society. And possibly, therefore, this passage or these two passages give us a, a, a more realistic perspective. We could talk about this for hours, the, the role of women and how we might approach that as historians. But how would you go about thinking about the two, those two sections, the Thucydides and this Aristophanes together? Well, I think uh, I think it's absolutely right to bring Thucydides into this and that funeral oration because of the way in which, you know, that sets out an ideal that sets out uh, how women should behave. And as you say, that can be quite distanced from reality. It's important as well to remember in the, the beginning of that passage that describes the funeral oration, there is an acknowledgement that the women have a role to play in lamenting the dead, right? So that they are present, they're part of this important civic ritual. And yet, um, you know, you balance that off with, as you say, Pericles saying, well, just basically don't be talked about. And I think then we look at a passage like this and, and it does become this sort of corrective. We, we have to be aware that there are gaps between that ideal and the reality but it's trying to get at the reality that is so so difficult um, and so then you know you look at something like this passage from Aristophanes and it just begins to allow us to see if you like um, the cracks just peek through a little bit even though you know of course we have to take that um, with a pinch of salt because of the way in, in which it's being presented within a comedy and we have male performers playing the parts of women and that potentially that, that, that this whole play is really performed with the idea of men in mind, you know, the male audience before anything and it's written by a male playwright. So you have layer upon layer of sort of uh, not necessarily obstacles uh, but factors to take into account. But I do think that it's important in the Thesmophoridusai that Aristophanes is interested in thinking about Euripides and women as a way, of, or female characters, as a way of reflecting on actually at the same time his own treatment of female characters. It's always a double level in Aristophanes when he's looking at Euripides, he's also reflecting on his own artistry and the way in which these female characters being presented. And then the further factor here is this is the parabasis, where the chorus step aside from their character to be able to speak, apparently, a bit more directly to the audience. Um, I think that's slightly misleading to imagine that anything is direct because it's all within a comedy, but it is nominally 
a bit more of a direct address so that you are um, in theory getting what what they really think you know that this is something they want to put across and it's really interesting to to look at particularly I guess the first section 786 to 800 and if we look at those lines it sort of starts everyone has got lots of bad things to say about women how we're a bad influence of men and responsible for conflicts quarrels faction trouble anguish war the lot well we've already talked in the period study part of the podcast about how uh, Aspasio was essentially blamed for the uh, Peloponnesian War you know and then the lines carry on about why do you marry us why do you keep such a close eye on us and, and all the rest of it and then we get into women being uh, looked at in the street uh, by men and and perhaps gawped at ogled we could say mm. these are actually the sorts of complaints that that sadly historically and and even today with with our me too culture which has emerged in, in recent years that these are the sorts of things women do complain about with, with lots of justification and so on the surface it looks like Aristophanes is almost standing up for me too culture I mean which is obviously an anachronism but could we at least say that again back to that idea that Aristophanes must be hitting on something based in reality that these are the sorts of complaints which Athenian men would have been hearing at home and from their women folk I think it's very tempting to read it in that way, uh, because, you know, otherwise, what is this passage doing? You know, you have to ask, why does Aristophanes get his cause to say this? You know, what, what, what's, the, you know, what's the, the purpose otherwise? Um, and so he, I would say, as a playwright, no one gets off in terms of um, his criticism, his critique. It's not just demagogues, it's the demos, the people themselves get criticised in any of his plays. Actually, I think that you, you can't find anyone who escapes. It's, and it's not just satire, and it's, it's not just for laughs. It's also that this is someone who I think thinks very, very, very carefully about society. This is why part of why I think it's such a good source alongside Thucydides. This is someone who closely observes the world around him and who writes plays that address all aspects of society so there could well be here I think an expression of not necessarily what women are saying because after all where you know apart from I suppose to their, their husbands where's the where's the place to be able to say this but this is actually potentially more about men than it is about women this is I mean this is Aristophanes calling people out on their hypocrisy it's like, well, hang on, um, you can't have this both ways. And, and it, it's, it's a long-term preoccupation. If you think about, for example, you know, on the mythological plane, the myth of Pandora, which we know was central within, you know, cultural currency in Athens. It's right there in the Parthenon. It's at the, the pedestal, isn't it, of that great statue of Athena. And it's, it's that conflict between hang on, we don't trust women, we don't know, you know, we don't want to give women power, and yet there we are, gawping at them. And so I, I think there's, there's certainly a conflict, which is, a, as, I, as I say, this ongoing preoccupation, but that you could make the case that actually uh, Aristophanes is coming out on the, the side of, 
of women in this passage. Yeah, that's intriguing, isn't it? And we'll never quite get to, to the bottom of it. But as you, I think the really important thing there, you said it's a corrective to the Thucydides quote. And I think that is a really important thing for our students to think about. And then if we look at the, the second part there, that's lines 830 to 842, uh, what we've got here is some evidence for the fact that women actually do play a prominent public role at uh, festivals, which we know from other sources. And you've talked about them lamenting for the dead publicly as well. So we just get a little bit of a sense here, don't we, of how women might actually be out and about in the city, albeit that the, the women are complaining that they don't get appropriate credit for raising a good son as opposed to a bad one. Well, well, and um, rather actually as well, this idea of that it's not fair for everyone to be treated equally, that if you've done a good job, I mean, it, it really goes back, doesn't it, to that funeral narration that you should be not talked about whether you're doing bad things, or you know, like whether for praise or criticism. And the same here that, yes, you're not going to get the honour. There's not um, a distinction being made between those who actually done the city great good by producing, which is, after all, one of the things you can do as a woman is, you know, to produce a great citizen for the benefit of the city. And that, it, you know, it doesn't matter if you do a good job on that or not, you're still going to be treated the same. Um, and so that maybe challenges, in a way, some of our, our notions of, you know, sort of equality within democracy. But actually, you know, there, there, there are honours and there should be honours. Um, and that, that should extend, yeah, to, it's, it's about recognition as well, isn't it? That should extend to uh, recognising the value and contribution that some have made. Over yeah, that's, that, that's very interesting that it, it actually ties in well with what Thucydides or Pericles says there that actually just don't be talked about at all whether for praise or blame and this is kind of what they're saying here well you know it doesn't matter whether we produce a a crook like Hyperbolus or a hero like Lamachus uh, we don't get any credit anyway so that part of it perhaps you know wraps in with Pericles. It is a rather I'm just thinking it's a uh... Uh, a rather sort of gloomy outlook, really, isn't it? The only thing, one of the only things that you can do to contribute to the city is uh, to do a good job as a, a mother and um, <laughs> still not going to get much for it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it is a gloomy outlook, but perhaps, you know, some reality there. Well, it's very interesting, at least, to think about Aristophanes probing that male audience with, you know, are you being fair to your women folk as you say absolutely challenging the audience i think is one of the things he um, that we could really see throughout his his comedy making them think and reflect on on practices that, that's interesting too one last thought on that is um that you know it challenges us not to necessarily think of women in athens as this cohesive singular group with the same goal and the same thoughts that actually you know, that between, you know, that there's that, that um, potential infighting even within that, uh, within that group. Okay, well, let's come to clouds. Um, and we're actually going to go again, slightly out of chronological order here. The last two plays we're going to look at will be Knights, which is 44, and Wasps, which is 42. And they are, um, to a great extent, both about Cleone. In between the two and 43, we have this play Clouds, although actually the version we have was, I think, rewritten or slightly rewritten uh, a few years later. And uh, Aristophanes complains about that, that people didn't like Clouds very much. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what he was trying to do. 
There you go. So it's a very interesting play. And let's see if we can try and understand what he's trying to do. We have three sections of the play to look at, but he turns to two things combined. One is the the culture of the intellectual in Athens. And that's a lot to do with the, the new learning, the new science, which comes up in lines 365 to 381. But the core anxiety is an outworking of that new learning, which is this sort of science of rhetoric, of being able to speak well and persuasively in a democracy. And of course, rhetoric is closely associated with democracy because when you're in a democratic system, if you get the, your argument out best, then you win. And we've had so many conversations in recent years about social media uh, and people using arguments ethically and unethically. Um, it's a really core anxiety of our society today and other democratic societies around the world. And what's interesting is that rhetoric becomes a core anxiety in Athenian democracy. And basically, the idea that people are manipulating you with clever but unethical arguments. And that really is the heart of this play, isn't it? It absolutely is. And, and that idea of what's going on in those places. And it is, it's that anxiety of, well, what happens to society if you can teach someone to make a case for something that is morally or ethically wrong? Um, and, you know, it explores those implications. And I, I think it brings it out quite brilliantly when eventually, so you, you have a father and a son in this play, Strepsides and Pyodipides, and eventually the son, once he's been trained in rhetoric, can make the case that it's okay for him to, to hit his father. Now, that always stays with me, you know, as the way in, in which uh, Aristophanes just shows the, the, the society unraveling. And typically, as, as you might expect in a, a comedy, it starts on the level of an oikos, a home, a family, but actually you're reflecting on the whole society through looking at what's happening in that household. And so, yeah, by the time Philippides can turn around and hit his dad and make a case to say, yeah, that's, that's fine. Of course, I'm entitled to hit you. Um, then uh, I think, you know, it's a sort of expose, really. But it's also quite clearly a pastiche, a mishmash of all the different ideas that are out there. So while people might think about this as sort of a targeted attack on Socrates, in fact, you know, it, I think it's deliberately framed in a way that allows us to understand and audience members who know enough to understand that Aristophanes is playing with all those different ideas. Because as we know, Socrates famously did not take money for teaching rhetoric. That's not how he operated. So I think that's sort of quite deliberately set up by Aristophanes to signal that this is not just about Socrates. This is about the teaching of ideas and the implications of that um, and the ways in which people respond to those ideas. That's what we're exploring through the play rather than sort of a, a targeting Socrates in the same way as he had sort of targeted Cleon. Yeah, and it's great to make links to other prescribed sources. Uh, you've mentioned Socrates and the Apology is a prescribed source. And of course, he says there in his defence speech that this prejudice against him within Athens really starts from Aristophanes' play, this play. Mm -hmm. 
it's actually we've only got three ancient sources who write about or relatively contemporary ones who write about Socrates. The first one is Aristophanes himself here, uh, and then we've got his two uh, followers, students, if you like, Xenophon and perhaps more famously Plato. This gives us a very different picture of Socrates. And the usual way of reading this is that Socrates becomes the lightning rod for all of these issues, that everything is hung on him. Is that correct? Mm. Yeah. And I, I think, again, it go, goes to the question of the audience. And you can write something and intentionally show that it's tongue in cheek to some extent, but the audience might not necessarily take it in that way. You know, it's about the point of, uh, when meaning is generated in a theatrical performance, it's not just the authorial intention, it's also how the audience takes it, where they think the humour is. Um, and I wonder whether there was partly a mismatch between what Aristophanes intended with this and the way it was received. So yeah, in 43 BC, it uh, gets last place. Yeah, and the, this revised version that we have, uh, our surviving text is from about 418 to 416 BC. So we don't know which bits he changed um, to, to try to compensate or modify or, you know, improve that play. So it, it, it's really difficult from what we're working with. But I do think there's something to be said for the way in which an audience might respond, the way in which the audience might take the joke. And even within the play itself, there's an awareness that, uh, so you have Socrates presenting ideas, and then the father Strepsides simply not having the capacity to get the concept, right? So I'm thinking about that bit where Socrates explains about gods, that's not how the world works. And there's this complex explanation about eddies, or I think it's called whirl. Yeah, so th this yeah. is our prescribed lines 365 oh, okay. to oh, 381. And they're, they're really interesting because it speaks to the fact that these pre-Socratics were coming up with new scientific theories and the idea in these lines is that actually the rain is not just Zeus pissing through a sieve yeah but it's clouds banging against each other which we today think well yeah that's obvious but this is presented as an outlandish idea isn't it it is and it, in in a way here you have perfectly the example of Socrates meaning one thing and explaining one thing and Strepsides having a different takeaway message from it, you know, the, the level at which someone might operate, you know, in response to these new ideas. So, you know, there's a, I think, an awareness of how Socrates himself, or whoever we think Socrates represents, the new thinking is misunderstood, right? Um, I, I mean, Strepsides simply cannot get it. But, uh, but also what's potentially so dangerous there is that you have then people going around with these half ideas, half notions. Um, and so their belief has been disrupted, but their understanding hasn't caught up. Um, and I, I think that's quite important to this idea of that whole suggestion of introducing, Socrates introducing strange gods, um, and the, the notion of how dangerous the idea of um, atheism may or may not have been at the time, you know, how, how threatening these notions might have been, how open people were to saying, okay, the, the Olympian gods don't matter, that's not how the way the world works. 
So is there a sense even that Aristophanes is, is parodying or satirizing people who are scared of new ideas, that it's not just parodying Socrates and these kind of newfangled ideas and how clever and impressive he is, or he sees himself to be, yeah. um, but also the way those ideas are received as being mocked as well. You know, these are simpletons who can't really get it. Absolutely. I think that, as I suggested before, I think, you know, uh, the critique does not stop with one character. The critique is of Strepsides, who, by the way, through the play, does not come off well at all. You know, this is someone who owes money and who, instead of being, you know, OK, he, he can't pay his debts and he finds a way of cheating those who come and, and ask for the money back because he you know, argues his way out or he uses violence. But he, he's, he's not entirely the victim in this, I wouldn't say. Um, and he absolutely does not grasp the concepts fully. And so, yes, I do think there's a critique of those who don't, don't get it. I mean, Aristophanes, I think, as much as Euripides or the other playwrights, I think are fully conversant with these new ideas, with new thinking. I think they probably moved in the sort of circles where you would at least be aware of these ideas, even if you didn't necessarily agree with them. Yeah, and there's, I think, in Plato's Symposium, uh, for all that in the Apology, Socrates says, oh, well, it was Aristophanes who made all these assertions in this play, and then that started the prejudice. In Plato's Symposium, I think Aristophanes and Socrates are our dinner guests together and getting on terribly well is that right oh yes of course yeah um ex exactly so <laughs> who who's being mocked i think is really at the heart of this um and you know i think it's such an interesting source for thinking through responses to these new ideas you know, different types of responses and well <laughs> strepsides the father is a, a different prospect from his son Philippides, and that also is important for the way it links in with the idea of you know, the charge of Socrates corrupting the youth, that Philippides is actually far more open to learning properly. Philippides does have the capacity to learn how to make the wrong argument sound right. Um, and so that's a different sort of danger. But it's really being explored in the round by Aristophanes. Yeah, everyone, everyone comes in for um, grief, which is a good satirist, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, OK, well, if we look at the, the main final section, the, the, so just to, to summarise, lines 92 to 118 are just introducing this idea of the, the thinkery and the idea that you go there to learn, making persuasive but unethical arguments. We've then talked about 365 to 381, which is looking at possible interpretations of atheism or scientific explanations for the white reigns. If we then come on to 8.14 to uh, 13.02, the, the, the meat and drink of this is what we call the agon, the contest between the right argument and the wrong argument, or the just argument and the unjust argument. There was actually one other source that I was going to bring in, which I think is relevant here for this play, which is the Encomium of Helen by Gorgias, which is on the, uh, the reading list. And Gorgias uh, from Sicily, he's known as the father of rhetoric. And we know from, I think, Diodorus, but certainly another source, that he actually pays a visit to Athens in about 427. Um, and he's there giving lectures and um, meeting with young people. And so uh, I wonder to what extent that's part of this 
or is it just generally a response to unethical arguments in the democracy? We've also studied by this point the Mytilenean debate, which happens in 427, as portrayed by Thucydides. Is Aristophanes thinking that manipulative, unethical rhetoric is just getting out of control, do you think? Oh, well, I think I think that's very important, that arrival of Gorgias. You know, that, that this is this becomes one of those marked, marked moments, doesn't it, when it, it almost not quite the invention of rhetoric, but you know, th this is when someone turns up and all of a sudden we're we're able to learn arguments. I think that's cultural prominence of that and the closeness in date to the clouds is really important to think about and to think, well, there's anxiety about rhetoric for a much longer time than this. I mean, I think it's an ongoing anxiety in Athens. As you've said, it's such a danger in a direct democracy if you have someone who is really able to persuade their listeners. So, Rosie, tell us a little bit about um, particularly this agone between the just argument and the unjust argument and uh, what we could read into that. Well, I think... Uh, it's typical of Aristophanes that he doesn't make it straightforward for us. While um, the worse argument comes across as uh, entirely odious, entirely shameless, so you think you're on a, a stable footing in terms of knowing where, where you should stand with this, right? So that new ideas represented by the worse argument will say absolutely anything to persuade you of their, the, the case, whether it's morally right or wrong. Okay, so far so good, but actually the better argument is shown to be problematic because in talking about the good old days, we get extraordinary details about how the better argument, you know, these personifications, this old guy, like to look at where the um, boys had been sitting with their buttocks and you can see the little imprint from the buttocks in the sand etc right so he is discredited through the agon and in the end the worst argument wins by being able to say just give way to the tide go on you want to go sit on someone's lap in the audience off you go and so it's not straightforward you know it's not as easy as saying all these new arguments and this new way of arguing is problematic because actually also we get to see that there's a problem with the old system as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it's right that the that's how it ends. The, the, the good argument does go and sit in the audience. Is that right? <laughs> yes. So <laughs> you can't, <laughs> I mean, I suppose you could say, well, that's showing just how shameless and manipulative the worst argument is. You don't even win by arguing your point. You simply say, you know, you play on someone's weakness. And um, use that. Um, and, and after all, that is the sort of picture that we get of demagogues elsewhere in Aristophanes that, that and, and we're going to talk about nights. The whole idea is that you say and do absolutely anything, you know, make promises, whatever it takes to get the people to agree to what you're suggesting. And I know we've said it before, but I think it's uh, worth emphasizing that this is really tied up with democracy. We're not seeing these sort of anxieties in Sparta, for example, are we? That we suddenly, Athens during this century has evolved a system where you've got to stand up in the assembly and persuade people. And yes, other cities have assemblies and things like that, but this is really tied up with, with democracy and getting people's votes. And as I said, when we started talking about this, 
it's a deep anxiety in our own society as well at the moment. Yeah, and but I mean, I think the chilling aspect of this is because of the way in which the direct democracy works, it is lives at stake. And actually not just lives of those who have revolted, you know, if you think about the Mussolinian debate, but actually looking ahead and looking forward, I always think about the generals from the Battle of Argonusa. Um, and obviously that, that's in the future when clouds is written, but it's a, a precise example of where actually even your own citizens who have been generals in that battle are put on trial and the persuasive argument is life and death for them. And they are put to death, right? They are executed based on someone's argument. And, and we could also, that's a great example, we could, we could also throw in from the period study the debate about whether to go to Sicily, which is uh, prescribed reading. Yes. Uh, and Nikias saying it's not a good idea and Alcibiades being very gung-ho. And again, how many thousands of deaths came out of, of his argument? Exactly. Um, and, and I think that it's the way in which, you know, it, it's <laughs> that the decisions that you make are based on whether you're, you're finding someone persuasive on such a huge scale. You know, we might be used to that in, in the setting of a law court, but when you get the same principle in an assembly, then yeah, absolutely, it's people's lives. And if you take the wrong choice, there's no rowing back from that. Well, that brings us really nicely to our, our last two plays. First of all, Knights in 424, um, and we have the, the lines 147 to 395 prescribed and then wasps uh, 891 to 1008. I'm putting them together as I said because a lot of what's going on here is about Cleo uh, but let's come to knights first of all. So this is uh, performed at the Lanaya I believe in 44 and we should put this in context it's just after Cleo's fantastic triumph down in Pelos and Sphacteria where uh, he has managed to take the island to capture the 120 Spartan soldiers who have surrendered. They've been brought back to Athens. They are hostages of war there. If we believe a later source, they're being sort of gawked at and looked at and objects of fascination for the Athenians. But Cleon is really riding high politically. He's had a fantastic a success. This play is an attempt at a takedown. I think it's the first play we know of that really just aims at one individual above all others and again it's important to say that even though it won first prize they obviously loved it he was still re-elected general for the next year so it's not as if they're like oh yeah we've seen the light now Cleone what a shocking guy he is we mustn't have him anymore because they re-elect him yeah uh, so uh, that, and, and he continues to be a target for Aristophanes I think you know partly for that very very reason that it doesn't convince people you know, that you can acknowledge, you know, you can laugh at the, in the nights of, of this. I mean, it is a, a pretty devastating expose of Cleon and his ways of operating. And yet, as you say, they, they still elect Cleon. So th that's quite a useful example when you're thinking about how serious Aristophanes is or how directly his plays influence, you know, impact on uh, everyday life, the politics of the city. And, and it's perhaps worth positing the idea that the Athenians might have thought, yeah, you know, he is a pretty dodgy character in lots of ways, but he's a winner and he's our winner. Um, so we'll vote for him. Yeah. Well, the, the, I mean, the, the flip side of the Knights is exposing how fickle 
demos is, um, you know, and, and susceptible and persuadable. Um, and it isn't really a victory within the, the play. Um, you have, of course, a sort of replacement for Cleon, the sausage seller, who can out Cleon Cleon. And uh, what a prospect that the best you can do to house Cleon is replace him with someone even worse. Yeah, it's not exactly a compliment to Demos, as you say, which is itself a, a parody of the Athenian people. And th there's such an irony there that the play is being performed for the Athenian people. And this, this character, Demos, he's sort of described as being, I don't know, is it old and blind? And, you know, he, he's, he's a kind of idiot, basically. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the, the couple of other passages from prescribed sources first of all in the old oligarch the old oligarch says at one point that the Athenian people will never allow their own type to be parodied well this play slightly goes against that and suggests otherwise and then the Plato analogy of the ship and the owner of the ship who I think is himself blind is, has some similarities to this so we get this this same theme of the idea that the the people the ordinary people were back to that idea that they can't really choose very wisely for themselves. They're, they're not very clever, which is quite an arist aristocratic view, isn't it? Well, and, and that's where Aristophanes comes in, because he's there to help them and there to guide them, which, you know, is something that he reflects on himself in his comedies. But uh, as we've suggested, you know, it doesn't always work that way. He might be there to offer advice, but his frustration or his, um, he is projected frustration as in you know the persona he presents in his plays says I gave good advice you wouldn't take it so that's a, an, another way in which I think he re reflects on his role as a playwright and it's worth just saying that the, the, there's quite a lot of personal between Aristophanes and Cleon isn't there this doesn't come out of, of nowhere so can you just give us a little bit of the background about how they might have got on or not well, so they're from the same dean in Athens, they're from Kudathanion, and it means that I, I think there's a personal aspect to the rivalry, certainly early on in Aristophanes' career. The second play he produces, the Babylonians, it gets first prize, but then he gets a legal charge, uh, headed up by Cleon, for slandering the city in the play. And we know about this from, uh, again, Aristophanes' own reference to it. And um, in the Arcanians, where he has Decapolis say, well, we're, uh, it's OK, I can speak freely because I'm at the Linnea. I'm not slandering the city. Um, so that distinction between the sort of audience that you have in those two festivals, the Linnea is a home audience, the Dionysia has other people. So, that you know, the charge of slandering the city in front of foreigners is the point. Uh, so we know that there's that rivalry between them. And it is always worth asking, well, how personal is this that Aristophanes keeps going back to Cleon? Um, even after Cleon's died, there's um, you know, comment, negative comments about him in Aristophanes. So um, th there is no limit, I think, to the extent to which uh, Aristophanes will pursue that. Yeah, I love there's a passage in Peace um, around line uh, 750 or so, where I think it might be the Parabasis, where he's defending and explaining his role as a playwright, comic playwright, as a sort of almost a public prosecutor. Um, and he's defending why he went for Cleon so much. It's the year after Cleon's died. So the idea of don't speak ill of the dead, it doesn't work here. 
And he, he talks about him like this in, in peace. He says, I'm the first ever dared to go straight for that beast with the sharp teeth and the terrible eyes that flashed gleaming fire like those of Sinner, surrounded by a hundred lewd flatterers whose spittle licked into his heart's content. It had the voice like a roaring torrent, the stench of a seal, the unwashed balls of a lamia and the arse of a camel. I did not re recoil in horror at the sight of such a monster, but fought him relentlessly to win your deliverance and that of the islanders. So he feels that he has a public role. He says, I think in Frogs much later on in the century, he's there to, to be a teacher and he feels that he's justified in doing this. Absolutely, and that, that it's necessary, right? So um, one of the points about the way in which he treats Cleon in both knights and wasps is how far we think that this is uh, a, a problem with an individual in politics or whether that individual Cleon stands for actually the sort of breed of demagogues that you're, you have around that time. Um, I mean, I actually think it's probably a bit of both, um, but there certainly is that sort of personal element. Uh, but I, I, I mean, you can start to sort of clock up the allegations because it's not just uh, personal insults um, like the ones we just heard. It's also that, that there are allegations being made in, in effect through comedy where we have in both Knights and Wasps the sense in which, for example, that victory that you mentioned in, in Pilos, that that was snatched, you know, that it, it was really Cleon taking the credit for something he didn't really do. Or you have certainly multiple suggestions of Cleon being on the take um, and that he's somehow making money, embezzling. Um, and so th there are specific issues raised by Aristophanes repeatedly in his comedies. And yet, of course, Cleon still enjoys political success. Thank you. Well, let's think a bit more about wasps then. And so this is 422, so the last year of his life, he's still alive when it's put on. And this is a sort of double attack, really. It's attack on Cleon again, because that's, we know Aristophanes loves to attack Cleon. But it's an attack on, or a critique of is perhaps a better way of putting it, the jury system and the court system in Athens. And again, I think we have this situation of Aristophanes wanting to point out to his large citizen audience the flaws in their system and to get them to think about it. So maybe talk a little bit about the play in general and then the prescribed lines that we have are 891 to 1008 as I said and that is the the mock trial of the dogs. Yeah then I, I think that the wasps is absolutely as you say doing both things it's thinking about Cleon but also the broader legal system in, in Athens and the, the way it can be politically influenced Again, a very dangerous thing in the same way that being a really good speaker and being able to persuade the assembly could have dramatic implications. Being able to dominate those law courts or exert influence over the outcomes in the law courts, which are mass juries compared to our really miniature juries compared. So the reason I mentioned that is that, you know, you have this sort of broad group of people who can be swayed. And it is important because that's also where scrutiny for public office could take place, right? So it's much more than being able to dominate or control the outcome of a trial for an individual over a crime. It also has political implications. 
right? Control of the law court as well as control of the assembly is, I think, a terrible combination. And Aristophanes suggests that Cleon has both, both the ability to control the assembly and the ability to control the law court. And so in WASPs, again, you explore this broad political issue through looking at a household, an oikos, a family, a father and a son. Again, this time the father is pro-Cleon, the son is totally against Cleon, and their names reflect that. So, you know, there's no escaping it. It's very obvious from the outset that Cleon is going to feature as, as a sort of target in this play. And Aristophanes uses that relationship between father and son and the power dynamic between the father and the son not just to reflect on Cleon and his influence over and, and attitudes towards him, uh, you know, between different generations, but also to think about the Persian Wars versus uh, the Peloponnesian Wars, to think about the past and the present, to think about actually how Athens forms its identity. Who is Athens now that they have this empire? Where's the place of those who thought, uh, who were prominent in the Persian War in this new kind of set up where people like Cleon are on the take and yet able to influence that older generation. And so I think all of that is at play in the Wasps. And particularly in the scene that we're going to think about, you have the concern around where the law courts sit in that. Well, you know, whether that functions appropriately, because, you know, again, it's not just a criticism of Cleon for being influential. It's also that the individual jurors or decasts are open to corruption. So it's not just that Philocleon, the father who is pro-Cleon and who, you know, is willing to sort of act as Cleon would want in the law courts, it's not that he's an innocent victim in this. He takes great pleasure in convicting. He's absolutely open to bribery. And so, you know, the, the problem goes beyond the individual demagogue. And I think Aristophanes wants the audience to think, think that through. Yeah, and so the, the, the core idea is that with the, someone like the father, the, the Cleon lover, that he represents the, a, a typical dickass, a typical juror, that he's probably based in the city because it's easy for him to get to the courts, and he's probably elderly because he's not having to work, basically. So you've got the kind of retired people of, of the city of Athens, which is not massively representative of the broad male citizen population, but are, are likely to be quite conservative, we might say hang em, flog em type judges, um, looking to convict, that's how the, it's portrayed. But also they're the sorts of people who are in the pockets of Cleon, that's, that's kind of what he's getting at, isn't it? it exactly. Um, and one of the things that's interesting, I think, in terms of thinking what Aristophanes might be doing with the play is you know again as a knight have you actually got anything better if you remove Cleon and Cleon's power you know there's this power vacuum and the sausage shadow takes that in the wasps you have Cleon's influence over the father being displaced only for the son Delacleon to take that space and to introduce his father Philocleon into a different way of being into this luxurious aristocratic sort of lifestyle and he absolutely doesn't fit in that. And it, it brings out the worst in Philocleon. So again, I think you're not always getting solutions in these comedies. What you're, you're getting is a question for the audience of 
what are we going to do about this? You know, inviting them to confront the issues within their society, even if you don't have necessarily the solution which is ready made. Okay, and thank you. Well, and let's attack this from a different angle as well, because we need for this course to understand how the Athenian law courts and legal system worked. And perhaps particularly putting alongside the apology, how can we read this as evidence for the basic workings of the law court or of, of a court case? I mean, obviously, it's a you know wild parody on one level, but can we actually take things from it and say, OK, this tells us that X happened? Yes. So, it, of course, it, as you say, it, it's a parody. There's exaggeration. There's comic substitution for the different sorts of equipment that you'd expect in a law court, but as a parody, it of course anchors itself in the reality and it reflects on that. So there are set phrases, there's procedural aspects of this, which absolutely align with what we understand took place in the law court. One of the difficulties, of course, is that this is some of our best evidence for what took place in the law court. So it's a, it's a bit circular, but where you can consider it alongside another source, as you said, like the apology, then you can start to see things like, for example, where the puppies get brought out for sympathy. Um, and uh, in the apology, we know that they're not going to bring out the relatives to create sympathy for the, the one in the dock. Then you, you can start from those two sources to get a picture of what happened in the law court. So we can think about, for example, the vote and then dropping the stone, you've got a choice of the guilty or the not guilty pot to cast your stone into, um, and of course, in this scene, the protagonist, Flocklion, is duped into acquitting when he wanted to convict, maybe pointing to one of the problems with that. But in, in terms of procedure, this is how it would work, and we know that from, uh, we've got a vase painting as well, to support that understanding of the system. And uh, so, yes, you can start to look at it as evidence for law courts even though of course there are ways in which it's distorted exaggerated etc okay wow well we've covered so much ground uh, rosie i just appreciate so much your time i've loved chatting to you about aristophanes i kind of feel we could go on and on and i won't subject you to that but it's it's been a real pleasure and he's a, a an extraordinarily interesting source i think for an ancient historian isn't he as you said at the beginning it's more obvious with him that we have to take care, but I, I think your point that we should take care about all our sources, maybe that's what he teaches us to some extent. Yes, and I think, I mean, it's been such a joy to talk about Aristophanes. I'd say this is an exceptionally valuable source. Don't be afraid of it. Just tackle that head on and you can take into account, uh, you know, the aspects that you have to be cautious of, but it has so much to offer if you're willing to be brave. Thank you so much. Thank you. Make sure you follow the Classics Podcast on Spotify so that you'll be the first to hear about each new episode. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you follow us on Instagram at The Classical Pod. For bonus materials, check out our website, classicalassociation.org forward slash podcast. <laughs>